This is Dune Talk, a DuneNewsNet.com production. Join us now for the latest Dune news, reactions, and lively discussions. Hey everyone, as the world press tour for Dune Part 2 continues, we're excited to be back with another packed episode of Dune Talk Show for you. Movie news, rumors, and even an official casting announcement? This is Marcus, your editor at DuneNewsNet.com, and I can't wait to dive into today's topics with Garen and Simon. Hey everybody, it's Garen here. I'm excited to talk about the things we're going to go over tonight, um, but uh, this is kind of a first. So Marcus knows something and he's holding out on us and he's going to reveal that and we're going to react right on camera. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, like Garen said, Marcus has a dirty little secret that he doesn't want to share with the class right now. So, um, yeah, uh, premieres, they were cool. Uh, awesome. So what's the secret, Marcus? Uh, but interesting that we got some casting news with uh, less than two weeks away. And still, we don't know who Tim Blake Nelson is. So that's a mystery. Okay, so important heads up for this episode. And as, as I mentioned in the, in the last show as well, in the first part of this episode, we're covering the latest movie updates. And you won't have to worry about any spoilers. Um, but then in the second part of the episode, I'll give a warning. And we're going to be addressing some of those big rumors out there. Um, and some people would consider them to be major spoilers. So if you're looking to avoid those, uh, please be ready to stop watching or listening uh, when we give the warning. So with that out of the way, let's go ahead and talk Dune Part 2. Dune Movie News. First story. Uh, Thursday evening was the London premiere of Dune Part 2. Denis Villeneuve was accompanied on a red carpet by many of his crew, including composer Hans Zimmer, editor Joe Walker, executive producer Tanya LaPointe, and the movie's spectacular cast were there and forced to promote the movie and interact with crowds of fans. Of course, stars Timothy Chalamet and Zendaya, and the latter appearing in a show-stealing outfit. Uh, we saw Austin Butler, uh, Florence Pugh, Rebe Rebecca Ferguson, Josh Brolin, Stellan Skarsgård, and all the others. However, it was a new joiner that grabbed all the headlines. That's right, as Simon mentioned, we're just two weeks before the movie's theatrical release and we're still getting surprise casting announcements. Anya Taylor-Joy was with the aforementioned stars on Red Carpet and she confirmed that she is playing a role in this movie, although she wouldn't reveal which character that is. Uh, Simon, th this takes me back to some of the early fan casting discussions on social media where the name Anya often came up when talking about you know, who Princess Irland could be, for example. So without spoilers, what's your reaction to hearing that she's joining the cast in a mystery role? Well... So the problem is I have way too much free time and I'm on Twitter quite a bit now. So I kind of knew what letterbox spilled and then they took it off and INDB does not have her at the time of recording listed as this character. I thought it was kind of weird that she showed up for the press uh, screening in England and not anything else like Leah Sadu showing up in Paris. That was weird just seeing her and her weird Princess Leia outfit also was kind of giving hints of who we'll be talking about later. Was it just me or was Zendaya cosplaying as Maria from Metropolis or early 3PO sketches? Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, Simon. I, I thought it was a really kind of strange thing to do and have it be this big secret, like it was talked about, but yet then you're going to have her walk out on the, on the red carpet, or rather it was sand that they were on. That was a big move, 
but yet they're trying to keep this all a secret about who she's playing. So I just thought that was a strange combination of events. Positive is what a fantastic actor joining this incredible cast already. It just beefs up the power of this cast even more. So I did think it was a strange thing to do suddenly like that. I mean, maybe that's the whole point is to keep us on our heels and surprise us with some of these things, but, uh, I'm not sure why now it's all supposed to continue to be hush hush because later in this episode, we're going to talk about what we think about her. So yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That, that's a good point. Yeah. We, we've already talked about how the, the cast from Dune part uh, two is already a dream come true. And you know, now another highly popular name is, is being added. I feel like, yeah, hasn't Villeneuve succeeded in assembling possibly the most talented uh, movie cast in in modern uh, in the modern era. But it's it's interesting that they that she was at the premiere. Like I I was watching it. My wife was like, "What? You're not watching the premiere on TikTok, the London premiere?" I was like, "Oh, I should." And then I started watching it, and then she showed up. And I sent Marcus a screenshot. I was like, "Well, I guess that's official now." Yeah. What we'll talk about in a little bit. Yeah, when you first sent me the screenshot, I was, I was like, where did you get this, this from? Has there been like, the, you, you know, some mystery leakers or something? And then I was like, oh, it's on TikTok. <laughs> yep. The Tiki Tack. And, and it was funny because then uh, Variety uh, posted an official article about it. And like some people were, were reacting negatively about Variety, like spoiling, um, you know, spoiling that, that casting. But it's like, hey, she was there at the premiere. Like she officially confirmed it, you know, on, on live <laughs> On the on the biggest uh, social media platform, practically. So, um, but yeah, yeah. As, as mentioned, I I thought it was really surprising. I thought they were going to keep this until um, until the movie premiered. But I guess after the the Mexico premiere, I guess the information was already out there. So they felt that they uh, it made sense to to reveal her. I don't know, or, or that could have been the plan all along. I guess they they, they knew it with a lot of people seeing the movie, it was eventually going to going to get out. So they might as well make make use of her star power to uh, market the movie even even more powerfully. Yeah, if you think about it just from a marketing economic standpoint, you've got, you know, you've got this whole cohort of, of, you know, Anya Taylor-Joy fans and who may not have been, you know, looking forward to doing part two, maybe, maybe it didn't even see part one. And suddenly they're like, oh, I love this person. I love this actor. I'm going to, I'm going to go see this. So maybe a, maybe a market driven decision, but maybe like you said, Marcus, this is going to be such a huge movie. It already is. And we haven't all seen it. All of us haven't seen it yet, but it's just huge. And so how do you contain all that? You know, you might as well get leverage out of these, these incredible actors by, by getting them out there. And, but yeah, I just thought it was kind of, kind of, it didn't feel very uh, smooth in the way it was rolled out, I guess, is how I would say it. Yeah, cool. So as mentioned, we'll be diving further into the story in our spoiler section uh, later on. Uh, I do want to give a shout out to our fellow Dune Talk co-host, uh, Mark, uh, also known as Dune Info, who is present in the fan area. He got some nice, uh, nice photos for himself there. Uh, so looking forward to hear his, his reactions uh, as well in, the, in an upcoming episode. Uh, second story, uh, original motion picture soundtrack for Dune Part 2 will be available on February 23rd, one week before the movie hits theaters. Uh, two-time Oscar winner Hans Zimmer is back, of course, with a 24-track album that promises us to uh, take us once more to Arrakis as well as Didi Prime and Kaitane. Uh, the composer commented that he'd been working on the movie's music for some time. In fact, since the end of uh, part one was complete. In the press release, uh, he was quoted as saying, I never left the world of Dune. In fact, I think uh, Denis Villeneuve thought I was quite mad because I kept writing after we finished the first movie. But because I knew the story, I knew the book, I knew what was coming our way. 
And in fact, a lot of the main themes in the second movie were written at the end of the first film, before Denis started shooting. It felt important to carry on writing when we were still in the same spirit, the uh, same frame of mind. And uh, two tracks from the album can already be listened to now, A Time of Quiet, uh, Between the Storms, and Harvester Attack. Uh, Garen, I'm starting with you, of course. Uh, what did you think of those two pieces, and what are your hopes for the rest of the soundtrack? Yeah, yeah. So I, I listened uh, in a couple of different ways, uh, listened uh, on some smaller speakers, listened headphones and some larger speakers, and uh, I'm an audiophile, so I, I really want to hear all the different sounds. Um, what I was what I was really struck by initially was the track "A Time of Quiet Between the Storms," because it's absolutely beautiful. Like it is, it is. Uh, I think Denis asked uh, Hans Zimmer to to create a theme for the love that Paul has for Chani, and he wanted it to be heartbreaking. And I I agree with Denis. I think he. I think Hans Zimmer nailed it. It's a very emotional piece. Um, it's different. You haven't, you haven't heard this before in part one, it's not a, a melody or sequence that you've, you've heard before. Uh, but it's absolutely beautiful. And, and I think maybe we've seen, uh, from some of the trailer shots, we we've seen perhaps, uh, some of the moments that this, uh, soundtrack, that this track is playing behind, uh, perhaps when they're on the dune talking and, and Chani talks about, you know, uh, being in water and how is that possible? And I, I'm wondering if that's where that actually, uh, that song, that track plays. Um, and then, and then really just the fact that this is the theme, this is the love theme. So I would like to believe that we're going to hear elements of this theme, uh, throughout the film. Um, and, and it's a long track list, uh, as you can see on our, on our website there, uh, there's a lot of tracks and. You know, it's, it's interesting that this time of quiet between the storms track is actually track number five and it comes after the water of life. So, so you can kind of imagine that first opening sequences and, and sections of this film are going to be pretty intense, uh, because obviously, you know, we know in, in filmmaking, you, you have to give the audience a breather, uh, you have to give them time to kind of collect their thoughts and, 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 and get ready for kind of the next uh, intense sequence. But um, I just think it's an absolutely beautiful piece, and I'm looking forward to hearing that theme in, in, other, in other tracks. And then immediately after that, uh, you, you hear, I was listening on Apple Music, immediately after that, you hear the track called Harvester Attack. And, and again, I'm, I'm assuming that this is the Harvester Attack. Again, we've seen perhaps some of these images in the trailers um, where, where the Fremen are attacking uh, the Harkonnen uh, uh, efforts to, to harvest uh, spice. So it's really intense and it's still, it's different again. I, I wasn't hearing kind of the same melodies or the, the patterns that you hear in, in part one. Now, now these, these uh, sounds fit into the genre, they fit into the universe, but it's different. And I was really excited about that. You know, I, I want this to be a unique experience. The music needs to feel unique, but it also needs to feel like it fits. And I, I think with these two tracks, uh, I was, I was, I was assured that that's going to be the case. Um, the harvester attack track is very loud. Um, it's obviously, you know, you, you know, from Hans Zimmer drums are a, are a central theme, not as many vocals, except at the end of the harvester attack track, that's when you hear, uh, 
uh, a theme and, and a, a melody in vocals that you've heard from part one. And it's, it's really the moment, if you remember in part one, uh, uh, when, when uh, Paul is being tested by uh, the Reverend Mother uh, Mohayam, and his hand is in the box, and, and he begins to kind of turn on her, and you see his strength coming through. It's that, it's that moment, that melody that you hear right there comes, at least a form of it comes at the end of, Har of the Harvester Attack track. So, so again, there's, there's that theme coming back again, the sort of the power of, of Paul and him coming into his own. But I really was most excited that I'm hearing new sounds, new melody, uh, new interesting themes, especially the, the love theme. So I, I, I feel like I, I'm about as excited just listening to these two tracks as I was last time listening to the whole part one soundtrack. So I just think it's gonna be, it's gonna be really good stuff. And I love the fact that Hans Zimmer was already writing this stuff as they were finishing part one. Like he was so into it. I mean, he is a, he's a true Dune fan of the book. And, and so for him to just allow that creative energy to just continue and to flow from part one, I mean, for heaven's sakes, he got a, he got an Oscar for the part one, uh, soundtrack. So to just let that energy continue to flow and his creative juices to, to, to fold right into this next, uh, this next film. I just think that was, that was a brilliant move. And I'm not, I'm not even surprised, you know, he, he says, Denis says he was mad. Well, genius, that's the creativity coming through. And I'm glad because he really is a genius. You know, very much like part one, I'm not going to listen to these until I watch the movie. I skimmed through them really fast, just like that. I knew what we were talking about tonight. It's kind of like I want to be taken away with the music and seeing the scene. But what I've heard of a a time be a time of quiet between the storms, which I think is funny that they released this a couple of weeks before the movie comes out with a title like this. But I did feel that epic scale, like. You're right, like what we've seen in the making of the trailers of Chani and Paul just talking romantically on the dunes and just having that big scale. I'm looking at the track list, and um, it's interesting. There's one called Paul Drinks. So I guess we are going to get Paul drinking some kind of liquid that we weren't sure about. And also one that we called way way back called gurney's battle so uh and that's been hinted at more and more so it's interesting looking at the track list i remember when the phantom menace came out i think it was like a good couple of weeks before the movie came out and one of the track lists was qui-gon's funeral like totally spoiling hey it's 25 years old this year i can say that now um but i remember seeing that and being like Wow, Lucasfilm, you let that one go. So that was kind of a surprise. Uh, I'm curious about the one called Kiss the Ring. Is that about the last scene in the book? Like something we've been hinting at? Or is that just Faye being like, kiss my ring and bow down, little Paul Atreides? <laughs> so it'll be interesting. I, I will definitely buy the soundtrack. I'll get the vinyl when it comes out. I'll get, I'll get through Apple Music also, but like I want to experience the music as I see the movie, like be taken away. And what I've seen, like early reviews 
and what people have claimed that they've seen the movie, you're just so immersed and taken away with it. So can't get here soon enough. No, that's fair, Simon. I, you know, I totally respect that. I'll tell you though, I really think that I could listen to this whole entire soundtrack and I'm, I'm going to bet that I'm just going to be completely taken away when I watch the movie. Oh yeah, I'm sure. But I respect the fact that you want to experience it the very first time with all your senses, all the images on IMAX. I respect that. Just don't the first, (laughs) the first soundtrack is still an amazing soundtrack. It is. And I love that Han was just working on music. He's like, I know this is going to get green lighted. Let me work on it, Denny. I mean, you got to think Han turned down, I forgot which Christopher Nolan movie to make the soundtrack for part one. So, and he's always said that he's a big fan of the books. I remember when we saw those making of, I think it was also in the IMAX special that we saw, um, like the 10, 15 minute preview, like talking about how he created new sounds, pretty much new instruments. So what you guys heard, does it fit with part one? Does it go with the flow? part one yeah absolutely 100 percent. but it doesn't feel like a repeat you know what i'm saying that's right that's the uniqueness of it so then uh, yeah as mentioned so the, the full track listing and all the other details are up on dunesnet.com so check that out um going to our third story so as we know uh, like the first movie we're also getting a behind the scenes um coffee table sized book for the movie uh the art of soul of dune the art and soul of dune part two written by Tanya LaPointe and featuring hundreds of concepts, stills, and other images from the movie. That's going to be available on March 1, so the, when the, the movie premieres widely uh, theatrically. Um, so this week, Inside Edition has also announced that we're again getting limited uh, editions, so two special collector's editions, and those will be available at the same time. So there's going to be one portfolio version that comes inside an exclusive design slipcase with four digitally signed uh, lithographic prints. And this one costs $130, which compares to around $60 for the regular version. Uh, and then there's one for our diehard collectors, which I'm sure a couple of people on this, uh, uh, this podcast will, will be buying, uh, though not, maybe not the ones on today. Um, this um, costs $795, uh, comes inside a deluxe clamshell box with six um, uh, signed art prints. And more excitingly, you get your very own Fremen Thumper. It's a prop uh, replica that, that actually comes in, in a box. And both of these versions have very limited runs, 750 pieces each, and can only be ordered direct through the Inside Editions um, website. Uh, Simon, are, are you getting the Art and Soul uh, book, and will it be the regular edition, or are you tempted by one of these collector's editions? Uh, I would love to have my personal own thumper, but, you know, I'd rather spend 60 bucks and be safe than $750. Um, I have the Art and Soul Part 1, and I'm a big fan of all the making of like art books. And I love that they've changed the format over the years. It used to be, you know, a tall, normal book, but now it's more widescreen. So you get better images. Like I have all the sequel trilogy from the Star Wars, all the single movies. Um, any movie like my mother-in-law got me for, uh, I was going to say Halloween, for Christmas a couple years ago, she got me Arrival. A so, like, that's also, you know, by the same creative team. I still need to get the Blade Runner 2049. But I love any arts and, like, behind-the-scene book made because I'm just 
I love awesome production design and I want to see pictures of the sandworm unit, you know, the, the warm unit and how they shot that. So I'm totally up for it. The other book that I, I think I'm more excited about is the Josh Brolin book that we haven't talked about. You know, that book, I'm really excited about it. And the one that he did with Greg Frazier, it's an updated one of part one, I guess, with more stuff for part two. But any of those behind the scenes books, I'm always a sucker for. I, I really just love the the care and attention that goes into these. Um, I know the the part one, uh, Arm Soul of Din, was just absolutely beautiful. And um, so it's interesting to me that, you know, you, you've got the collector's edition with, I mean, who doesn't want their own thumper, right? I mean, that's, that's awesome. But um, yeah, I just, I, I think it just helps everyone appreciate how much goes into this, how much preparation and thought and planning and effort just goes into creating these films. And, and I just love seeing it. I kind of like you, Simon, I used to, as a kid, you know, I would get those, those magazines that was like the making of Empire Strikes Back. And I was just fascinated. I would just pour over those for hours, you know, just understanding how did they do that? How did they make that look so real or, and that's exactly what, what they're doing here, but kind of on a, on a whole new level. So, um, and then, and then I, I've been noticing on this, uh, on our website or, or rather on our Twitter, um, that that image on the cover, um, isn't that the symbol for Fremen? Do I have that right, Marcus? Yeah. Yeah. For, for one of the dishes. Yeah. Yeah. So on the one, the $130 edition of the yeah. one I was looking at, I think. So anyway, I just, I think that's, that's telling and it's just cool. I just think it's really fun to have these and to, to be able to see behind the scenes and see the creativity that goes in behind it. Uh, I, I do have to say for, for myself, since, since I've, uh, you know, had the experience of moving around a lot recently, I'm not as much into, into the habit of collecting physical products, but when it comes to these art and soul, uh, books, you know, this is where I, I always make acceptance. I'm certainly going to be getting the hard covers, um, the regular version for my shelf. And I'll also be getting the ebook version so that I can always refer to it on my PC and, and e-reader. Um, so yeah, look, look, looking forward to, to this and hopefully we'll, we'll do, do a review of that as, as well, um, closer to the release. And then Mark can do a Sean Telway stumper because you know Mark's going to be in that one. Yeah, he will, hundred percent. Yep. Great. That covers all of our official updates for today. Uh, coming up in a minute is our spoiler talk section of this episode. You'll notice that we were here with a smaller group today, and that's because some of the crew chose to avoid further spoilers since the movie's release is already so close now. Uh, so yeah, just uh, letting you know if, if you feel that knowing some major plot points or key differences from the book would lessen your enjoyment of the movie. Uh, we'd recommend that you stop watching or listening um, at this point and then join us for the next episodes of Dune Talk. Uh, we have some press screenings coming up uh, this week and we'll be sharing our overall reactions with you very soon. Um, so yeah, a final warning for some spoilers ahead. I must not fear, for fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. Okay. If you're still with us, there's some pretty crazy discussion ahead. <laughs> Around uh, one and a half weeks ago, there was that premiere in Mexico City, uh, where, uh, as mentioned, not only the press, but hundreds of fans got to see the movie. And it was asked for attendees uh, not to talk about spoilers. And I believe almost everybody has respected that. 
However, we're living in the age of social media and it's almost impossible for things uh, not to spread. Um, so the following information we're going to discuss is based on comments from those who have allegedly seen the movie, uh, either in Mexico City or in the Paris premiere. And similar information has come from multiple sources. And some of it has been partially corroborated in the official interviews. So because of that, we believe that we're dealing with the truth or something that's near to the truth. Uh, but we haven't seen the movie yet ourselves. We're seeing it very soon. And we haven't verified this, this information yet. So we're still treating them as, as rumors. So starting out with the overall structure of the movie, and this is one point that does match up with the official interviews, there will not be a time skip in Dune Part 2. So as we know already, uh, and this is what Filinov has, has mentioned earlier, Part 2 picks up immediately after Part 1 uh, ends. And it's been revealed now that there will be no jump in the middle of the movie either. So to be clear, there will be weeks passing, there will be months passing. However, we won't skip suddenly several years into the future. Uh, Garen, knowing that in the book there were years that passed between Paul joining the Fremen and uh, the final acts of the book, what's your reaction to hearing the timelines have been compressed for this uh, movie adaptation? You know, you guys, I'm, I'm kind of torn about this because I just, I want it to be so true to the book. And I know Villeneuve has, has told us that he's going to honor that he's, he's made a commitment to that, but he's also said there's going to be differences. And this, this may be one of them among another one we're going to talk about probably. Um, I, I guess I understand maybe why, I mean, I can maybe see that there's a need to not create time skips that cause confusion. Um, the audience is going to need to be, I, I do appreciate that Villeneuve has been very uh, careful with his audience that has not read the book. He, he wants to make sure, in fact, he even mentioned, and I think it was in Mexico, he mentioned, you're going to be able to watch part two without having seen part one, which I found a little surprising. Um, I, I can't imagine in this, how easy it is to go watch part one on Netflix or wherever that anyone can't just go see that. And probably many people will go see part one before they go see part two. But the fact that he's being so careful about that, he's being, uh, cognizant of the fact that he wants everyone who's watching this film to not be lost or confused. So I do like that part, but the, the time skips in the book really are important to the story. They, they really play into some really key events. And not only that, but the evolution of, of some key characters. Yeah. I, I'm a little concerned about it, to be honest with you, Marcus, I, I think this could depart more from the book than I would have liked. And, and it does cause me a little concern. That, that's interesting, uh, Garen, cause you're, you're almost taking the words out of my mouth that, that I was like uh, thinking in my head now, like, um, yeah, even before we get to the other spoilers, which are obviously going to be tight, tight to this in a way, uh, this change uh, also has me concerned because we know in the book, you know, as, as mentioned, it's, it's years that pass and, you know, uh, Paul joins the, the Fremen and he, he gets to know their, their ways and, but there's still resistance, right? Like e even until later stages, there, there are people who are still challenging uh, him. So I feel like if you shorten that gap into like a matter of months instead of years, that sort of reduces his development. And also we're talking about the whole thing about expanding, um, the relationship of Paul and Shawnee. So obviously that is going to be expanded in the movie. I think we're going to get a lot more depth than we are in the book, which I think that's a positive thing. But then again, you're compressing that out down into weeks or months. And we've talked about that before. Um, Chani, like she's not impressed with Paul in, in the beginning. And then like, how quickly is that going to go from 
you, you know, like she, she's, uh, you, you know, okay for him to die. You know, she doesn't believe that he's, he's the one. Uh, and then like later on, she's falling in, in love with him and they're going to have a child together, you know, the, the, the blue ribbon and all this. So it just, I, I'm sure that Denis has, has reasons for, for making that decision and that there will be like a good execution, but like, I, I am concerned. I really have to see how this is going to play out. I agree with both of you guys. When I heard there was no time jump, I guess what I heard from one of the interviews with Josh Brolin, it's been nine months since Gurney has seen Paul, but also I've heard Timothy say it starts off really fast with the, you know, the funeral of Jameis. I don't know. I, I kind of like when I read the book and even the Lynch one and the, the horrible, you know, segue to like many years has passed. Paul wants to learn the Fremen way. It's not something that he does overnight and they have to trust him and also create a bigger threat with Raban being in charge of Arrakis and, and squeezing it, you know, really for what it is. It's, I trust Ani, but it kind of doesn't get me worried, but kind of goes, why are you so, like, why do this so fast? How bad would it be just to do a quick, you know, edit explaining time has gone by? Very much like the Lynch movie. So one point for the Lynch movie right now. One other point later when we talk about something. But it's just, I don't understand why it's not a big deal. Just do, do a voiceover or put a little title card with a different date, a different year. That's, so that's actually like a very, very funny point. I didn't think about when, when you mentioned Raban, right? Because like basically in the book, you know, Raban is reinstated. He, he like uh, takes over Arrakis again. And like, he has like, I guess, years to sort of like try to get control of the situation and control the Fremen. And now, you know, he just has weeks and months, you know, like poor, poor Raban, you know, he's, like, he's, he's really got like, some break. I mean, it makes the Baron even more evil, right? That he didn't even get a, a proper amount of time to, to run the operations, right? Um, <laughs> Yeah, you guys, I, I, I just think there's a lot of implications of this that, that are going to affect things in the, in the evolution of some of these characters. So, you know, to, I mean, we're going to talk about Aaliyah in a minute here, but the whole idea of having time pass allows Paul to develop and to, uh, gain the trust and respect of the Fremen, which takes. Let, let's be honest, this would take a while. <laughs> this, the, the Fremen were, were being, not only are they being uh, suppressed and controlled by all these outside houses, but now here's the new one. Here's, here's the Atreides, right? So the Atreides are not their friends at this stage of the game. Uh, the Atreides are still like the enemy. Um, e even though the Duke did promise Stilgar, you know, we will never, you know, take kick you off of this land and all that, you know, but I don't know that that's going to mean a lot to Stilgar, right? He's going to be very distrusting of this. This is just the new occupiers. So how do you, how do you have Paul and Jessica be brought in and, 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 uh, you know, integrated into the Fremen society when there's going to be so much antagonism and, and distrust and how do you do that without their having time pass? So that then we, as the audience believe, oh, okay. Yeah. He, 
Now they trust Paul. Now they see Paul as their leader. Um, so th that is one major concern. Um, and not only that, but think about the time that it takes to integrate into a foreign culture. You know, it, it takes, it doesn't take weeks. It takes years to be able to be a part of a culture and understand the nuances of that culture, to build relationships, to understand things that are completely foreign to you. I mean, as an, as an Atreides growing up on Caladan, Paul has zero understanding uh, other than his Prussian visions. Okay, I'll give him that. But he has no understanding of this society, let alone Arrakis itself. So to me, you need to have time for these things to be believable to the audience. So, gosh, I, I could even name some more, but I'll stop right there. Well, it's also like Duncan mentioned in the first movie, he's like, I had to build trust with them. I had to get their loyalty to like believe that I was good. And like you were saying, Garen, going to a different culture takes years. Yeah, I think the, the, the word that I was, I was looking for is sort of, I guess, well, we, first of all, we have to see the movie to see how, how it's executed. But I guess my concern here is that it, it makes the story feel uh, smaller, if that makes sense. Because um, already in, in part one, we, we, we saw Caladan and we saw Eric Keen, but like it felt like everything was, was happening in those, like, those noble centers of life. So in, on Caladan, we only saw Castle Caladan and some, some shots of, of nature. We didn't see like, what life was like for the people of that world. And we didn't even see the, any of the, you know, the, the, the city there. Sa same thing on Erekin. We saw what was going on inside the residency, but we didn't see what life was like on the streets. And then now it feels like, okay, we're, we're going to see the, the Fremen way of life, but we're going to see like how it is in one siege. And then it's going to be interesting to see how they connect with, with the with other siege. So again, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how, how it's executed, but that would be my main concern that, you know, we're going to have less development, that the story is maybe going to feel smaller than, than it should. And, and I'm trying to think through, uh, Villeneuve's other films, um, we need Johnny, our other co-host for this, but, um, I, I. I can't imagine that there's something, I, I know that, um, voiceover is something that is among many filmmakers is kind of seen as a, as a lazy way to, 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 uh, use exposition in your film. Um, even though I actually love the original Blade Runner and the way, uh, there's that voiceover, uh, in, in the first version, but it is seen as kind of a, 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 a less ideal way to tell a story. But I wonder if there's something about this uh, time skip that, that Villeneuve is trying to avoid for some reason, um, because it's an important part of the book. So why wouldn't he just allow that to be in his film? And he's a talented enough filmmaker that he would, he would know how to do that in a way that would not be confusing. Or... So, so I'd just be really curious to know what went into that decision, and, and I'm sure it was he and the other uh, John Spates and the other writers that made that decision. Um, but I just think it would have been okay. I, I, I'm trying to imagine what would have been wrong with that to allow some time to skip, particularly in the case of, of you know, uh, Leto too and Aaliyah and, and all these other characters, Dunning, and Paul himself. Um, I just think it would have been uh, fine to do that. I don't think it would have been a problem in my mind. I mean, you have Joe Walker, one of the greatest editors around. I could easily don just a quick montage 
doesn't have to be four hours long, the montage, but just show like the evolution of stuff. I don't, you know, you guys, I did just think of something though, because this film has a unique creative way of showing prescient visions of the future. And, and I love how it's done. We've talked about it on this before with the, the lens flare and the, it's like when you're watching part one, you know, when Paul's having a, a prescient vision, um, and, and it's not accurate always. And we, we learned that in part one. Um, he, he explains that to the Reverend mother, that it's not always exactly how he dreams it. And I wonder if Denis was trying to avoid having there be, you've got these time jumps in the future with prescient visions. Would, would the audience maybe get confused by that? So we need to keep the timeline of the film, uh, in, in, in succession because we are going to see some of these future events like Aliyah, like the future that we're going to see in Dune Messiah. And I, I believe we are going to see Dune Messiah. Um, so that just, that just occurred to me. Yeah, and I think part of the, the answer is tied to uh, the next point we're going to talk about, uh, which is the other major rumor. So if we have shortened timelines, uh, this point follows logically from that, that there's not going to be an appearance of Alia as a child in the movie. Since only months are passing instead of years, it's likely um, that shot of pregnant Jessica that we saw in the sneak peek scissor reel, like when, when she's like inside the siege and she's clearly pregnant at that point, like in a, in a more advanced stage, uh, it's likely that that's further into the movie. And this feels uh, pretty legit, this, this rumor, because uh, there was a Times article and even like one of the recent interviews where Rebecca Ferguson was, was talking with, with Nerdist and she mentioned the, the concept of Aaliyah as an embryo in the womb who's already communicating with, with Lady Jessica throughout the film. So that, that's, uh, yeah, intriguing uh, thoughts, concept going out there. And we, we don't know how that's going to look visually. Of course, the people who have watched the movie, uh, they can comment on that. Uh, but yeah, Simon, uh, all of us on the show have been excitedly discussing young Aaliyah for the past year. Uh, what are you thinking now that unlike the previous adaptations, we're not getting that aspect in this movie? I'm shocked. Who knows? Denis might actually give us a younger version, but I think the casting of Anna Joy Taylor as an older Aaliyah in one of Paul's visions is pretty much confirming that we're not going to get little Leah, Aaliyah, stabby, stabby, like Rachel would say. But um, it's interesting. I like that she has already a connection with Paul and Jessica through the wound. It's going to be weird. It's going to be trippy. It's Dune. Um, I think Denny can handle it right. Of course, I would love seeing a little kid wear a crest knife, you know, full spoiler modes, like we said, and being like, and now, Baron, now you will die. You know, I would love to see that. Like me and Garen were saying, score one for the David Lynch movie for actually being more accurate <laughs> to the book than the. Villanova movie at this point, but um, it's interesting. I mean, time will only tell. I like that there's a vision. I still think there has to be visions of stuff from Messiah to end the movie because they keep saying it ends in a dramatic form, and I don't think it's the Cheney Aaron like I'm going to take her as my wife and you'll just be my concubine. I think it's something bigger than that. I think it's something that's going to shock even book fans because Denis keeps saying, this is my vision. I kept true to Frank Herbert, but I 
twisted and turned some stuff. So I'm curious. It'll be interesting. I also want to know what you're hiding from us. That's what I'm more interested in right now. Well, maybe you've heard it already, but we'll get into that soon enough. Garen, I'm wondering, like, when you're hearing this thing, like, I mean, just hearing the the concept of like an embryo, which is communicating with with Jessica, and we we know that from the people who watched the first ten minutes, like there was some, the reports of that that Paul actually within the first ten minutes he's already communicating with with uh, Aaliyah in the womb, um, and that apparently it's a it's a visual scene. Uh, so this is already like quite a you know as as Simon said like it's it's doing it's 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 weird and like like people were, were saying oh like yeah. Maybe Villeneuve wants to avoid the the whole idea of like having a child like who who's you know acting like an adult and that would look super weird. But this already sounds sounds weird. Like, what can you imagine the reasoning for for this would be? Yeah. The, first of all, I think, I mean, let's 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 talk about the fact that uh, Denis and his team took a year to design the sandworm. Okay, so imagine the level of thought and detail and effort and money going into creating the sandworm so that it's believable. Same thing with the ornithopters, right? Because the worst thing you can do in an adaptation of this, of Dune is to have people go or chuckle to themselves like, oh, that's goofy. Like that's funny when it's not supposed to be, it's supposed to be serious. I'm wondering if Villeneuve and his team tried to figure out a way to have this two or three-year-old toddler girl who, who speaks and acts like an adult, not only an adult, but like a reverend mother adult. I wonder if it was just too far. It was just not possible to have it be a visual cinematic experience that felt real or like it could be real. I get, I get that we're in a science fiction universe here and anything's possible. I understand that. But Denis wants things to be rooted in some sense of reality that the audience can relate to. So I, I just, my only thinking on this is that it, maybe they even tried, maybe they even tried to do, you know, some, some uh, storyboard, you know, uh, pre-vis stuff. And they tried to try to do something with a little toddler for Aaliyah and have her walk and talk. And, and it just, Denis like, nope, this is not going to fly. This is not going to work. The audience will be instantly taken out of this. And suddenly we're watching a Pixar film or something. And I, I wonder if he made that decision to keep things not so rooted in the, the weirdness. I mean, I love Frank Herbert's weirdness, by the way. I just think it's incredibly creative. But for, for Villeneuve to have this be a, a worldwide film, and he already knocked it out of the park with part one, he has only the opportunity to make it even bigger in part two. Maybe he felt like I can't risk this with a little toddler, Aaliyah walking around, stabbing people. You know, I just, it, it just isn't going to work. So then what you do is you capitalize on the preborn theme. So you have Aaliyah who is speaking as an adult with, uh, with Lady Jessica, her mother. But maybe you expand that to she's speaking Aaliyah, preborn Aaliyah is speaking with Paul too. And, and you kind of connect this with kind of a, you know, uh, I mean, it, it reminds me a little bit, a little bit about uh, with the, at the end of uh, Emperor Strikes Back where, uh, very end, where, where Luke 
uh, hears Darth Vader speak to him, right? And and it's almost like I'm speaking through the universe to my father or my father to son. And, and I wonder if there's just some family uh, consciousness that's being connected, um, even though that was established in the book and in the subsequent books, by the way. But now you're kind of, you're avoiding the little toddler syndrome, visually looking goofy, and you're, you're bringing in this conscious connection so that you're staying in the timeline. And then you see a future vision uh, of, of the adult or young adult Lady Jessica, which is going to play a, a big role in Messiah. So that's the only thing I can think of at the moment. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting to, to ponder all, all, all of that. And like, uh, yeah, Darren, I think that, that's, that's like really plausible that, that that's, as you're saying, that maybe they did try it and they weren't finding a way to work. But then on the other hand, I think back to, um, you know, the, the Lynch movie 40 years ago, or even the, the, the miniseries, and they, they did have a taller. And I would say that's, that's maybe one of the aspects of the movie that was, you know, like objectively, if, if we step back, maybe it wasn't the most realistic and, you know, like it wasn't the best possible portrayal. But I'm thinking now, you know, like in 2024, like with all the different technologies uh, we have at our disposal, with uh, all, the, all the possibilities with, uh, you, you know, like with um, aging, de-aging, de those sort of things. Like I, I can't imagine that, you know, like a director who's a visionary directly like Denis Villeneuve, that he wouldn't be able to find a solution to make it work if, if he wanted to. Like, I guess th that's, that's my thought. Of it. Well, let's remember, this is also rated PG-13. You bring little Leah into it. It might get a rated R, therefore you lose money at the box office. So there's there's probably hmm. that that goes into it. But I agree with you, Garen. It's such a crucial part, especially when you go further into Messiah and children. So I don't know. I mean, I do I do wanna I do wanna just acknowledge that kind of kind of what you were saying, Marcus, that an adaptation has to be the vision of that director. It, it's, it's not Frank Herbert writing the script and directing this film. We love the, the book. We love the elements of the book. We even love the, the strange, weird parts of this book. But, but maybe I have to kind of suspend my loyalty to everything being perfectly aligned with the book to be able to embrace Villeneuve's vision of this because he really has transported me to Arrakis in a way that even Lynch didn't quite do. And, and everything about it, we just talked about the music. We've talked about design aspects. I mean, I, I just, we've always kind of said we trust Villeneuve and we, I, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna trust that his vision is going to give me that experience even though it may not have every element of, of the story that I love so much. And, and quite frankly, that's okay. You know, I, I, I need to be okay with that. Um, it just kind of feels like I'm having some parts of me ripped out or something because these were images and sequences that I envisioned so many times reading the book, even as a young kid. And, and my, my imagination could picture Aaliyah running around, you know, killing Harkonnens and, and Sardaukar and, and, and then at the end, killing the Baron. Like I could picture it. It all, it all worked in my head. Um, so I guess I wanted Villeneuve to honor what was in my mind, but this is his vision. 
and and he's far more talented at filmmaking than I am. So I'm going to just I'm just going to go with it. Yeah. And I think what, one of the, the things we, we mentioned in, in do part one um, is that, th that there were already some some significant changes, which sort of, you know, you, you realize that when you're watching the, the movie on screen and you're watching the, the book, I, I mean, it's not exactly the, the same thing. There, there are some differences there, but it was still the feeling that, you know, you could imagine that the, the banquet scene happened off screen. You know, you could still sort of fill in the gaps in the mind, uh, but it feels certainly with with this second part of the movie, that's not going to be the case, that there are going to be some significant changes. So I think at the end of the day, I think what's going to make or break the movie is is at the end of Dude Part 2, if I really feel that he's stuck aligning to the themes and, you know, like maybe reinforced uh, the messages for, from the book. So I'm really hopeful for that. Uh, but yeah, as, as you guys were already alluding to, um, so even though we're not going to see uh, Child Ali, as, as mentioned, uh, we're going back to that casting announcement. The people who have watched the movie say that Anya Taylor-Joy is playing the adult version of, of Aliyah. Um, and basically, Paul sees her in, uh, in, the, in the vision scenes. And it, apparently, it's, it's not a very long scene. It's, it's, a, it's a brief thing. But the, the whole aspect of uh, uh, Denis casting, uh, you know, like such a popular actress for this role now, like I, I can't imagine that is any other reason that he's already thinking ahead to to Dune Messiah because as mentioned he's he's already working on on a script it's in advanced stages. I mean I guess certainly he could you know like you know pull back at a certain point and just say like okay it's uh you know that was a vision and then now we're gonna see like the real Leah and like cast her again but like you know it wouldn't make sense. I feel that this is really like a long term uh, choice that he's made. So Garen, how how do you feel about the, this casting choice? Do, do, do you think it makes sense? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I mean, uh, I think Anya Taylor-Joy is, is, uh, is a fantastic actor, like I said before. I think, um, I mean, really, it's reassuring to me that you have an actor uh, at that level of skill and experience being, being brought in, being brought in on the red carpet, as, as it were. But really, I agree with you, Marcus. All this is, is making sure that we have an, an actor that can de uh, depict uh, adult Aliyah in Messiah. And, and for those of you that have read Messiah, she is a pivotal character. She is a major character in that story. So you've got to have someone with the acting chops uh, of Anya Taylor-Joy to be able to pull something like that off. So even though she may be only in this film just for a few seconds or minutes i don't even know um she is going to be in the universe among the cast because she has a major role to play and i love that because that tells me that we've got messiah coming um i just can't see any scenario where we don't have messiah coming so another confirmation that that story and like Villeneuve has always said he wants to complete the arc of paul right so it's a, it's a trilogy and, and, and I really am excited that this is another indicator that he is going to be able to fulfill that trilogy vision with Messiah. I think it's a smart choice. It's very much what he did with Zendaya was, I'm going to use sports term, but kind of drafted her for part one, showed her a little bit of screen time and then be like, Hey, I'm going to give you a bigger role in part two, which she apparently has. And same thing with Florence Pugh. I think I even heard Zendaya and Florence talk about that, how Florence was just brought on for what is a bigger part than the book. But still, when Messiah gets made, she's going to have a bigger part 
And I think the same thing with Anya Taylor-Joy. So it's kind of creating, getting your draft picks and saving them for later when the time comes. Um, the other thing is, I think we've seen her in one of the trailers. I think the, a couple of months ago, I think it was the second trailer. But remember, Garen, you even said it looks like a younger Rebecca Ferguson outline of some woman walking. So maybe that is on uh, Anya Taylor-Joy. So um, I think we've seen her, but we didn't realize that it was her at that time. Yeah, and Rebecca and her, there were shots at the UK premiere. You can be like, yep, I can see mother-daughter relationship, like how they look. And uh, yeah, I'm not sure if if you guys had heard this or or, or not, so so I kept it for when it lastings. So if we don't have a baby Aaliyah walking around with a knife, who kills Baron Harkonnen? You want to take a guess? So I've heard, I've heard this. I, I think I even sent this to you. What was going on? I still think it's Faye Rafa, but there is the big rumor that it is Jessica. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with Jessica. Um, and I didn't, I didn't read this today. Uh, I wasn't able to stay up on everything, but, um, and the reason I like that, if you're, if you're going to change it from Aaliyah. You're at least keeping it, you're keeping it in the frame of here's my daughter, not my granddaughter, but here's my daughter who is going to take matters into her own hands and eliminate the psychotic evil antagonist. And, and I, I think that to your point, Marcus, I think if you make that character adjustment, you're staying true to the the tone and the theme of Frank Herbert's book. I like the idea of Fade killing him, Simon. I think that's cool. I think that's fun. Um, but I'd like to believe that if you're going to stay as close to the truth as you can, then you have Jessica do that. And maybe it all comes down to, you know, this is my father. I am, this is not going to work. I have got to take this guy out. And it also goes along with the strength of Lady Jessica that Villeneuve has depicted all the way along, even in, even in part one. You know, uh, even, even though there's, I, I know uh, Rachel made a really good point about, you know, not being, or maybe it was Kara, said we didn't get to see all of the physical, just, just the one interaction or the one fight with, with uh, Stilgar in part one, but we didn't get to see all of the, the body muscle control stuff, you know, that, that we know that the Benny Jesserit have. But at least you're staying true to Lady Jessica being this very powerful, formidable, now Reverend Mother, skilled in the in the uh, the, the weaponry and and the, the the fighting skills of Bene Gesserit, and she takes out the Baron. To me, that feels like the best option. Those are rumors. Uh, so there have been rumors, yeah. and those could be two options. Um, and I, I've seen actually some some conflicting things, but. If the rumors hold true, like this, the same as, as the other sources, it will actually be Paul who, who, who does, does the deed. Mm. Okay. Okay. But there is two cool things about the Jessica thing, if it does happen. We've been building up this whole entire thing, seeing Jessica being like, your father didn't believe in revenge in all the previews. So it shows that she hits her trigger point where she knows that she wants revenge. and also. How much love and honor is it to kill the Baron 
the man who killed her beloved Duke Leto, also getting revenge. I think it would shock the audience, showing, hey, these Bene Gesserits are pretty dangerous and deadly. Yeah, um, I, I like that, Simon. I, I like what you're saying. So, Marcus, I I can see why you you would continue to reinforce Paul's ascension to the throne and power by having him take out the Baron. That that would also work. Um, man, I, I have trouble with that because of the book. Like, a, man, that's really, that's a different story to me, you know? Um, having, having Jessica do it, it's just a tweak, you know, or a shift. Having Paul do it, it's like, that's like rain at the end of the story, right? You know, I mean, that's a little bit strong for me. And I think this is what, what Villeneuve is, is alluding to when he says that his, his adaptation has some, some differences. Um, so th this, is, this is one that I'm torn on, but like, but like I see like pros and cons to both sides, because of course this totally takes away from Aaliyah's story. But, you know, as mentioned, you know, like Aaliyah's not going to be a focus on this movie and he's keeping her for, for Dune Messiah. And then, you know, I, I do like the idea if it had been Jessica, that would, would, would make sense that Jessica is basically, she would be killing her own father. Right. Um, but yeah, like, like the, the way that this plays out and the way I'm imagining it in, in my mind, because we, we've seen that, that shot in, uh, in one of the trailers where it's like someone who's, who's walking and holding the, the bloody knife. And then later on, we see like an, in one of the teasers, we saw a shot, it, it's, it's Paul and his knife is very bloody. So, so that, that, that could be like, you know, like Paul has has come into the into the room like he's he's a cloaked figure no one knows who he is he kills the baron and then he reveals himself that you know like i'm paul atreides i, I survived and you know like imagine the reaction from from the emperor and and everybody else in the room but also like this is sort of this is reinforcing the, the moment that paul is really is it, it is that emperor strikes back in a uh, moment in a way where like paul is like taking some some decisions you know and he's going all in on, on that revenge you know he, he's going to kill the baron he's going to kill uh, fade and then he's going to take over the throne and i think this really hits home that message at the end that this is not a hero anymore so so by the time we see him seated, seated on the throne you know like we we have a strange feeling like i i, I can imagine you're know, like this that part is just speculation because we haven't seen it ourselves but yeah to, to me this this part like you know you know as, as mentioned I'm, I'm torn because i, I don't want to see like deviations from the, from the book but at the same time, this is really intriguing. You know, like I really want to see how this plays out. And I think it could, could work out well. That's, that's really interesting, Marcus. Um, because Villeneuve has stated more than a few times how he wants to make sure that we know Paul is the anti-hero. Um, it's, it's not, um, it's, it's not the standard, uh, you know, mythological hero story. So, so I like what you said there. If, if, if we see Paul throughout part two, we, we see him continuing to be a stronger leader. He, he gains uh, the respect and loyalty of the Fremen. Um, they, they defeat the emperor and, 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 all, and all of his uh, power and, and armies. And then at the end, we're kind of left with this. I like how you said it, Marcus. It's kind of this, this unsettled, weird feeling because here's our hero. And he's, he's a murderer. I mean, again, it's, it's, it's defeating evil. So it's like, oh, well, that's okay. Right. But maybe we're left with a feeling of like, wait a minute, is this going the way we thought? Is this, is this hero? Is there some elements of like 
evil in him, you know? And, and imagine you guys think of that part in, uh, in part one, uh, in the, in the still tent where, where Paul sees that vision of he and Chani up in that, uh, up in that, uh, transport ship, looking down on the armies and they have a really evil, weird look in their eyes. Both of them. It's like, that's creepy. That's not who we think these people are. So what if he's going for something in that tone, Marcus, right at the end of part two, so that we're all left like, oh, great. Our hero defeated the evil emperor, but I don't feel any better. This feels scary, you know? And that's what they can be talking about. To to Messiah, a perfect lead in the Messiah. That's what they can be talking about, how it's an uncomfortable ending. Where you're just like, oh, he defeated the bad guy, but has he become the bad guy now? I mean, it's only one person. It's not like 61 billion people later on, but it, it's, it would end with that weird, uncomfortable feeling like, what did I just watch? And especially first time we ever see Paul, he's in it bad. He's like this little weak little figure and now he's the most powerful human being around yeah and and that and that right there if our theory was correct that right there does stay true to frank herbert's purpose and reason for writing at least the first two books in his series right he that was a message that he underscored with that's why he wrote messiah he wrote messiah because he wanted to make sure all the fans, all the audience knew that this, be careful of who you decide your leaders are and be careful who you follow because they may not be who you think and they may have, they may not have the integrity to stay good. They may be twisted over time into something that you hated in the, in the beginning that you were afraid of. So, so I, I think we could be really onto something, you guys. I, I think this could be some reasons how that ending could feel very unsettling. Go, going back to, I guess, a bit before the ending, one of the other, I guess, changes or like things that we were like speculating about before that doesn't seem to be the case is if we're not going to have like Aaliyah being uh, born, or at least we're not going to be seeing child Aaliyah, we're also not going to be seeing a uh, baby Leto the second right because like you know Chani will also see if she gets pregnant in the movie still like that will be after um like lady jessica's pregnant so she definitely won't won't give birth so so th- there, there i'm a bit like um unclear from some of the rumors I- i've heard is it just not gonna be part of the movie because we do see the the, the blue headband from yeah. uh from from Chani, or is it just gonna be like okay he wasn't born yet but it's weird because we do see Chani fighting at the end you know i, I can't imagine she's she's fighting at an advanced stage of pregnancy but yeah. I really liked what we talked about last time, you guys, about, you know, that, that, that new image of Fade and, and some of the Harkonnen uh, uh, minions behind him that, that appeared to be a siege. And I, I really like the idea of, you know, Fade being the one who kills Leto II as a baby, as a newborn, whatever. Um, I, I just thought that creates the motivation and the motivation in Shawnee, or at least it enhances it, and it brings us audience into hate fade 
even more. Like it, 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 it just hits the stratosphere in terms of how much we despise this guy now. Um, but yeah, I don't know if there's, I don't know if there's time. I don't know if you can, if there's no, if there's no time skip, how do you do that? Yeah, because I mean, if Aaliyah's not going to be born, then obviously this, uh, this child from, from Paul and Chani is going to be born. So I, I think that that plays into like the, the second theory that, that I mentioned um, last week, which based on rumors could be seems the most most likely now is that, uh, you know, fate attacks the CH. He kills uh, Shishakli and, and other Fremen. And, you know, like, of course, I don't want to downplay that because that's going to be also an emotional moment because they're playing up this character to have a bigger role in the movie and we're going to feel for her. But I, you know, like I do feel it's like a huge missed opportunity that you you have an actor like Zendaya who's played all these like amazing drama roles. And we won't have the opportunity to, to see that performance of her losing her, her, her first son on, on a screen. Like that, that's, I, I feel it is, is a miss. Yeah, I, I think that's a huge uh, missed opportunity to feel the emotional heart-wrenching uh, sorrow of, of having, I mean, if, if the focus, just like we see in the, in the, the movie poster right now, what is the movie poster? I mean, the main one, it's. Paul and Shawnee right there. That's it. It's about them. This story, even though there's so much around it, this story is about them and their relationship and the love. We just got done talking about the, the, the love theme that, that Hans Zimmer wrote, right? It's the, the love between them is so important. Well, what is more dramatic than having their firstborn son who they name after his grandfather, Leto, the son, they name him Leto after the duke and he's murdered he's murdered in 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 the attacks uh, from the, the harkonnen to me that's just a huge missed dramatic opportunity and that's one of the things in the story that although it's very brief in the book it's just it's literally like a sentence but it causes you to just go oh my gosh like they just lost their first we thought this baby was going to be the, the the next heir to the throne right and now this He's gone. I mean, that's just terrible and heartbreaking. So I don't know. I don't know, Marcus. That, that, that's exactly one of the points that I would have loved to see expanded, you know, like on, right. the, on the screen, screen adaptation. And you've got two actors that can really display that emotion so well. Both of them. They're both so good at that. And, and you know, we might not see it. So I think, uh, yeah, covered the, the major rumors out there. I think there's some, some smaller ones, but we've already like ha have a, a long show. So I think we've covered the most important ones. And I think as mentioned, um, the most important thing we have to see that how these are executed and we're seeing the movie in such short time. So I'm looking forward to actually see these scenes from, for myself and then, uh, make my mind up about them. Uh, but I, I'd say like to summarize for, for, for myself, I think most of the, the, these rumor spoilers that, that we we've talked about, like I do have, a I do have concerns and I don't like the sound of them deviating away from the book so much. But then when I hear that point about the, the ending and, and Paul being the one to kill the, the Baron, it sort of does give me, me hope that there's like a, a vision for this and that it's going to sort of, um, yeah, ha have, have like a really strong impact uh, at the end. But, you know, a along the way, I, I feel that I'm going to be uh, unhappy with, with, with some of the, the missed opportunities along the way. I'm, I, I know I've been a little bit... Uh negative about these concerns, but I think there's going to be enough ornithopter shots that I'm going to be perfectly happy. All right, people, we're coming down to the final finish line. Uh, you can follow me on social, SDowdy everywhere. Uh, can't wait until we actually get to see the movie 
and stop talking about possible spoilers and just go in full spoiler mode as we'll break down this movie probably in six, seven parts like we did for part one. If you're bored these upcoming weeks, go back and rewatch those episodes. Hey, thanks for joining everybody. Thanks for uh, all your comments and, and support. Um, I love to hear all of your opinions, not only about the things that we say, and we, we love when you disagree with us because, you know, these are just our opinions. We're just super fans. And I know I was a little bit uh, concerned today, but honestly, I, I, I think I'm going to be able to get through those concerns. And mostly I, I am really devastated that uh, my two co-hosts here are going to see the movie before I will. So I'm really down about that. Yeah, this is uh, Marcus here. Um, yeah, so I so just want to say, like, th thanks so much to the community for all the support and, and all your suggestions. And that, yeah, we, we really enjoyed to hear your feedback. And one of the reasons that we decided to do the spoiler episodes, because we were undecided if, you know, if it made sense or not, was because we, we had questions from so many of you to, to discuss some of these spoilers and, and share thoughts and, uh, and go into what was going on. So yeah, like really appreciate it. If, if there are things that you want to see more of in the upcoming episodes, just let us know. Uh, but as mentioned, we're, you know, on the evening of, uh, of uh, seeing the movie very soon. So soon you'll be seeing our, our reactions, having the, the full thing. Uh, so we'll be having uh, some episodes with overall reactions without spoilers. So to get you warmed up, excited for seeing the movie yourselves. Uh, and then we'll be doing, as usual, our uh, traditional series of going through in detail, scene by scene through the whole movie. Until the next one, take care.